Take out your Bibles again and turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, and we will be looking today at verses 1 through 13. John 7, starting in verse 1. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of of him. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God in heaven, we pray for the preaching of your word. Thank you, O God, for the reading of it. This is a particularly, in some respects, difficult passage, not necessarily to understand, but to apply. Um, We pray, Father, that you would use it to encourage us, that we may grow in our knowledge of our Savior Jesus, that we may trust in him to greater measure, Uh, that your truth would implant itself deeply in our hearts and that we may be fruitful in it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Throughout our study of John, we have run into a number of people who do not believe. Uh, They see the works of Jesus. Perhaps they're even enamored in some respects with Jesus. They hear his teaching, but they do not believe. What is interesting is that in some cases, their unbelief looks like belief. In other words, they're they're so-called disciples of Jesus. They're they're following Jesus around. They call him good. They seem to be interested in what Jesus is doing. But they want something else from Jesus. Jesus. They want something other than what Jesus' mission was. They perhaps were friendly towards Jesus, but weren't really interested in what Jesus was offering. They had come with their own agenda, even if they weren't hostile to him. We have seen this in the past few weeks as we studied the bread of life discourse. Many wanted full bellies. They wanted the bread that Jesus was offering. They wanted to make him to be their king. 
But they didn't really want what Jesus was offering. Jesus was not turning out to be the kind of Messiah that they were wanting. But then he would say, you know, as they were following him, as they were interested in him, they wanted to make him king, they wanted his bread. But then Jesus would say things like this, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then, of course, words like that lead to some of his his disciples deciding, no, we're not any longer going to follow him. They begin to abandon Jesus. He's not the sort of Messiah that they wanted. Jesus is pointing out that unbelief was not only manifested among those who were outwardly hostile toward him. And we see plenty of that in the gospel narratives. But it was found even among those who may otherwise count Jesus as a friend. Those who perhaps liked Jesus. They liked what he was offering. We see this in our own day, don't we? We see people who aren't outwardly opposed to the Christian faith. They almost seem friendly towards Christianity and yet are still really not believers. Well, here in our passage today, we see unbelief among those who are even his own brothers. His own physical brothers, the children of Mary and Joseph. And so we're reminded again of God's providence in all things. From the timing of the brothers' faith, as we see at this point, they're not believers. Now we do know that his brothers will come to faith later. Eventually they'll come But we we see the timing of their faith. We see the timing of Jesus' entrance into the feast. All of these things are part of God's providential care and plan. Those who will come to Christ, and when they come to Christ, is part of God's sovereign plan. If they do, and when they do, is a part of God's plan. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, now from a human perspective, at this point in his ministry, it has reached what seems like something of a low point. From the miraculous multiplication of bread and fish in Galilee, the people wanting to make him king, you know, people were chasing him around the Sea of Galilee, you know, what, you know they chase him across the sea, they're looking for him, they want him. To now, disciples determining they no longer want to follow him. They're walking away from him. They're abandoning him. And so now things seem like they're not going so well from a human perspective. And so some time has gone by and his brothers are trying to encourage him. They want him to go up to the feast in Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up the narrative in John chapter 7 and verse 1. So we read, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. Now, we should keep this in mind. That John's purpose in writing his gospel has not been to give us a detailed, a historic account of every event which occurred in Jesus' ministry. That's really not his purpose. He's not trying to give a precise, the precise timing of all of the events. So, so here we see again this sort of general uh, statement, this indeterminate amount of time which has gone by when he says, you know, after this. Some time has gone 
by. And so the amount of time from the past events, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, feeding of the 5,000, the bread of life discourse, to where we are now in these events, the amount of time is indeterminate. Some amount of time is gone by. Although we can uh, you know, approximate the time based on the evidence before us. What we know is that the events of the bread of life discourse of chapter 6 occurred around the time of the Passover. And these events recorded here occur during the, during the Feast of Booths. And assuming that these are occurring within the same year, then perhaps what we're talking about is about six months. About six months of time has passed between these two events. During the period of time after the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had continued his ministry in the region around Galilee, but he did not go to Judea. He stayed in Galilee. Now, the reason for this geographic restriction was because of some who were seeking to kill him. That's a good reason not to go to Judea, right? People are trying to kill you in a place, you're not necessarily going to go there. And so he's not going there at this point. Now, John calls that group, those who were seeking him, the Jews. The Jews. Now, this doesn't refer to an entire ethnic group. This is not the way John is using the term here. After all, Jesus himself is a Jew. His disciples were Jews. No, this is not talking about an ethnic group, but rather it's referring to the leaders, the the authorities in Jerusalem who were hostile to Jesus. And so because of these authorities, because they're, they're seeking to kill him, Jesus would not go into Judea yet, but remained in Galilee. And so it seems that Jesus had spent roughly a year or so in, in, in Galilee, in the region of Galilee. And, and some of his activities um, that, that uh, some of his activities have been recorded in John. Some of them were blanked uh, by the after this of verse 1. Um, but this, this, by the way, this year of ministry, that's the focus of the synoptic gospels. Most of that is recorded there. Uh, John doesn't record a lot of that information. He just uh, kind of skips over that, probably because it's already been recorded in other places. That's not his purpose, is to give us everything. And so now that year of ministry uh, is coming to an end, verse 2. And now it says, now the Jews' feast of booze was at hand. Now, the institution of this feast is associated, uh, it's from the Old Testament. We read about that actually in our Old Testament reading. Uh, It has to do with the gathering of the fruit harvest, such as grapes and olives. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 13 says, You shall keep the feast of booze seven days when you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press. So this is talking about fruit, which is uh, coming to uh, uh, harvest. And this feast ran for seven days uh, on the lunar days, which fell somewhere in September or October in our calendar. Uh, The historian Josephus wrote that the Feast of Booze was the most popular of the three principal Jewish feasts. Many people would flock to Jerusalem during this feast. And so you have, you know, this sort of press of people which are coming to celebrate the Feast of Booze. Uh, They would make, uh, in Jerusalem, makeshift structures. They would take branches and they would take uh, leaves and they would create these uh, structures. They would live in them for the week. And this is why they call it booths, right? They lived in these booths, these, these tabernacles that they would build. 
And the feast was also said to have a water drawing rite and a lamp lighting rite, both of which Jesus will make clear reference to here in John chapter 7 and in 8. So we'll want to pay attention to that as well. He's going to draw on some of the aspects of this feast in his ministry. And so with the feast at hand, um, his ministry, from, again, from a human perspective, seeming to be at a low point, his brothers, again, his brothers are looking at this from a human perspective, his brothers say, hey, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. So they say to Jesus, you know, if you really want to build your following, ye need to go to where the people are. Ye need to go to the feast. Now, again, these brothers are the, son, the other sons of Mary and Joseph. And so these are the younger brothers of Jesus. And we also see in verse 5, John mentions that they are unbelievers at this point. Now, again, we know that they will later become believers after the resurrection. But at this point, they are unbelievers. In fact, uh, we, we know that they're going to be believers. Uh, one of his brothers, James, will preside over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And James is said to be a pillar of the church. At this point, though, his brothers do not believe. They're not hostile toward him. Um, they're not unfriendly toward Jesus. They just simply don't believe. But for some reason, they've become his self-appointed promotional directors. Perhaps they see... Uh, they seem to think that Jesus' ministry has fallen on hard times. And they think, you know, let, you know let's, let's help him out. So they're sort of trying to promote him. They may not have believed in him as Messiah, but they wanted him to have a following like John the Baptist had. Maybe like what Jesus had before. And we can see that though they are not believers, they're not antagonistic. And so they tell him to go to Judea so that his disciples may see the works that he is doing. Now, the disciples have in fact seen the works that he is doing. So why are they suggesting that he leave Galilee and go to Judea? Well, again, they're probably aware many of his disciples were no longer walking with him because of his difficult teaching. If he needed to do something, uh, th th maybe they're thinking is, you know, Jesus, you really need to do something before all is lost, right? So you need to get out there, you need to really, you know, get, get these crowds up and going and really get yourself a following, right? This is, this is the way a human, this is how we would look at things, right? And this is what they're encouraging him. This is what they want. You know, if you don't do something, Jesus, all is going to be like, you're not having any disciples left if you don't do something. So get out there and do something about it. And so, with the Feast of Booths coming up, here is the perfect opportunity, right? To go to the city, to really show what you can do, Jesus. The feast, as we know, attracted people from all over the region. Really, from all over the empire. And if Jesus were to go and perform miracles there... Uh, not only would he have the largest, he, you know, he would have the largest crowd, and then word would spread quickly, and boy, what a great way to, uh, to gather people. Now, for, again, from a human perspective, maybe that seems like really solid advice, right? Hey, you, you, you want to, you know, get a following of people? You need to go where all the people are. You know, people who are already religious and already excited, go do, go do some signs and wonders, Jesus. Now, again, remember, they're not believers, Right? They don't believe in him. The criticism the brothers have of him is that he's being too secretive. He needs to be more out in the open. He needs to be more public. 
How is he supposed to gain followers if he, he keeps being so secretive, if he keeps speaking in such strange code, if he, quite frankly, if he keeps saying things that sound really crazy, right? You know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood. Verse 4, they say this, For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And the brothers thought Jesus should work openly, that is, without obscurity. He should, he should, he should no longer teach in metaphors. Because up to this point, he's been speaking in metaphors a lot. They wanted him to be public. They wanted him to be open. They wanted him to be clear. Jesus needed to show himself to the world. Now the problem with their suggestion should be easy for us to see. The brothers desire for Jesus to be put, to put on a show. Right? That's, what they, that's what they really are asking for him to do. To do some things which would gather him support. And what better place to do this than one of the biggest feasts in the biggest city? But to do such a thing would pander to the desires of the people and would do little to bring about true saving faith. This was not his mission. They wanted him to do the very thing that he had already rejected doing before. This is not the sort of thing he was going to do. He did not come on man's terms. He came on the Father's, the Heavenly Father's terms. The brothers wanted Jesus to show himself to the world, but the world was precisely that which would not receive him. The world, in fact, cannot receive him and remain remain by definition the world. For the world, as John has used the term before, is in opposition to Christ. How can those in opposition to Christ then receive him? You see the problem. No, in a sense, Jesus has no intention of showing himself to the world. He was certainly not going to start pandering to the crowds. Something he's already refused to do. Nevertheless, Jesus will reveal himself in another sense, not through the working of signs and wonders in Jerusalem, though. This is what his brothers desired. No, he would reveal himself through the shame and the humiliation of the cross. You see, it is at the cross where Jesus will draw many to himself as the Savior of the world. It is at the cross, it is with the empty tomb where Jesus will most manifest himself in the mission he had come for. The Son of God came to rescue sinners. He came to make children of God from those who were in rebellion against him. Jesus didn't come to pander. Jesus didn't come to put on a, a show. Jesus came to save sinners like you and me. And Jesus didn't need to go and stir up crowds that would not gain him the right kind of attention. And at any rate, this was not the plan of the Father. Jesus' brothers didn't understand his mission. But that's understandable, as we see in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. They didn't understand because they didn't believe. They hadn't themselves received him as Savior. So many had rejected him or did not believe, and even his own brothers. This does serve to illustrate the necessity of the call of the Father, doesn't it? We've, we've looked at this in the past already. 
Even his own brothers, those who had grown up in the same household with Jesus, those who surely had heard the stories of his miraculous birth. I'm sure Mary told them the story. Even they don't believe. You think about that. Isn't that incredible? I and mean, you would think if you grew up with Jesus, you know, mom says that he's supposed to be the Savior. They don't even, even they don't believe because they weren't called yet by the Father. If they don't believe, if the brothers can't believe, with all of the evidences presented to them, they saw the things that Jesus did. They saw, they saw the signs and wonders that he performed. They heard the stories from Mary, surely. And yet, even they don't believe. If they can't believe with all of that, then who could believe, right? Who could believe? Remember what Jesus had said previously? Those who believe are those who are given by the Father, those who have been born from above. This has been the theme over and over again throughout John's Gospel. John's Gospel makes this point over and over again in a variety of ways. You must be born above or born again. You, you know, those who are, belong to the Son are those who have been given by the Father. And if the brothers don't believe, but well then why do they want Jesus to reveal himself to the world? Well, they're making the same mistake that all the crowds had been making too. If Jesus is the would-be Messiah, then he ought to do something big and get followers he needed. This is what they're thinking. It's not that they personally bought into the whole thing. But if, if, uh, if, 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 if he was to get you know, a, a big crowd, if he would put on a great show perhaps, then maybe he would grow his following. But in this way, they're being superficial. They're as superficial as the crowds have been. And they were only interested in what Jesus would give him. And so the brothers, like many of the crowds up to this point, didn't believe. And they didn't believe because they had not yet been given by the Father. Again, the significance of this is important, right? The brothers will believe eventually, but not yet. They still, at this point, are unbelievers. You know, the significance of what Jesus has done and said had not been understood by them, and so even they didn't know Jesus' true identity. Even them who had grown up with him, those who had known the stories of him, those who knew him well, they understood, they knew something of, of what had occurred as, at his birth, even they don't believe. Again, because they hadn't yet been given by the Father. Now, how does Jesus respond to their, the brothers' unsolicited advice? You know, here, here they are trying to be, you know, his, his promotional team. You know, hey, hey, Jesus, we have a great plan for you to really get things going. What does Jesus say? Verse 6, my time has not yet come. Again, notice the timing of things, right? Jesus looking at the timing of things. My time has not yet come. You see, his brother's reasoning is flawed because the time, his time had not yet come. But what does he mean? What, what time has not yet come? Jesus, by the way, responds in a, in a way similar to that which he had given to his mother in John chapter 2 at the, at the wedding feast. At the wedding feast in Cana, the wine had ran out. His mother comes to him, essentially asking him to do something about it. And Jesus says to her, my hour has not yet come. 
Now the words we use are differently, but are different words, uh, time versus hour, but the basic meaning is the same. Now the reference uh, here, though, is not to his being glorified and being lifted up on the cross or coming in, his, in, in messianic blessing. Rather, what Jesus is saying is the time for his going up to this feast had not yet come. The understanding being critical based on the second part of the verse, but your time is always here, right? Jesus is basically saying this, it's not time yet for me to go to the feast. Okay? He's not saying he's not going to go eventually. He's just saying, my time is not yet. My time is not yet. It was not the right time yet for Jesus to go to the feast, but the brothers are free to go anytime they want. You want to go to the feast? Be my guest. Go. You are free to go anytime you want. Jesus is constrained by God's sovereignty. The timing of, of every step he takes on the way to the cross. Okay? This is all under God's sovereign will. His time was not yet. Everything that was to take place with him was to happen at just the right time as ordained by the Father. That's the point. It's not that the brothers were free from the sovereignty of God, but rather that their actions are of such little significance in the grand scheme of God's providence that they could come and go as they please, seemingly. Jesus, though, has a particular mission to fulfill, and so timing for him is everything. His time had not yet come. Now keep in mind, of course, there are people in Judea who want to murder him, right? Timing is important of when he shows up. This is all in God's Sovereign hand. And we don't know the details of who is gonna, who's lurking about uh, looking for Jesus to kill him. But Jesus' arrival at the feast, like, uh, like everything else he would do, would need to be at just the right and perfect time. Again, God's in control of the events which are taking place. Even the most minutest of details. Everything is in accordance with God's sovereign will. And so the time was not yet at hand for the events which would occur later. And so Jesus, in fact, would go to the feast, but he would go at the right time. And so Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And then he adds, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Here's the reason why the brothers are free to go up to the feast any time that they please, because the world isn't hating them. They didn't need to worry about going there uh, as they pleased, because the world doesn't hate them the way they hate Jesus. The world cannot hate you, Jesus says, and this is because they belong to the world. And here's the thing, the world loves its own. Right? Again, remember, the brothers, they're not believers yet. And so they belong to the world. The world isn't after them. And by the world, we're talking about the systems and powers and administrations of this present age. The world speaks of those who are hostile to Christ and his people. The world, therefore, hates Jesus. And the reason they hate him, he says, is he doesn't belong to it. And in fact, he testifies against it. He testifies that their works are evil. He's a light shining in dark places. You see, the world hates that its evil deeds are being exposed. This is always true, isn't it? 
Just as those who dwell in darkness hate the light, the world hates to be exposed. They hate to have their lawlessness exposed for others to see. The world does not want to be convicted of sin. This is why the brother's suggestion that, the, that Jesus show himself is so wrong-headed. The world is seeking to kill Jesus, but they're not seeking to kill the brothers. And this is because they're of the world. They're part of the system. They are lost sinners and rebellion against their against their creator. The fact is that those who are not in Christ, that is, not believers in Jesus Christ, trusting and resting in Him alone, are not hated by the world. Right? If you're not a believer in Christ, and you really don't have to worry about that, you're not hated by the world. In fact, you're part of the world. But those who are in Christ are not a part of the world, and thus we are also hated with Christ by the world. The brothers want Him to show Himself But as we know already, we saw this in the prologue in John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. The world didn't know him, the world rejected him. So verse 7 explains both why Jesus will not do as his brother suggested, and and show himself to the world, and why any time was as good as any for them to go, right? Jesus can't go at any time. He has to go at God's perfect time because the world hates him. They seek to kill him. The brothers are free to go anytime they like because you know what? They're part of the world. The world's not after them. They can go as they please. Whether they understood it or not, these brothers were aligned with the world. They understood nothing of God's agenda in the matter before them. And as it is, they did not listen to his word. For if they had listened to him, they would have believed. They did not recognize Jesus as the incarnate word who had come to them. Again, John 1, 11 and 12. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You can see how much in the prologue plays out in the gospel of uh, in John's gospel over and over again these themes are being played upon. Here's here's his own people, his literal own brothers and they don't even receive him. And yet those who do receive him, those who believe in his name, they will become children of God. And so Jesus' own brothers don't recognize him, they don't understand God's timing, but the, but they are free to go and Jesus invites them to do so. But as for him, he says, my time has not yet fully come. Now this is where uh, the text does seem to present something of a problem. In fact, uh, Dean and I had a conversation about this earlier. Um, As it's rendered, it appears in English that Jesus is saying that he's not going up to the feast at all. That's the way it kind of reads in our English Bibles, right? You kind of read that and you you begin to wonder like, um, well, wait a minute, is Jesus being dishonest? Is he saying, I'm not going to the feast, but then he goes anyway? And then he's, is he lying? How many of you, I mean, don't raise your hands, but you know, if you read that, you might think, huh, what's going on here? Now, obviously, Jesus can't be dishonest, but what is going on here? Well, understand that the Greek here does not preclude any further action. In other words, Jesus saying that he's not going up to the feast is not definitive. It's not the final answer. It's not that Jesus was planning on remaining in, in Galilee indefinitely. That's not what he's saying. It's, what he's saying is that he's not going to accompany the brothers to Jerusalem at that time. That's really what he's, that's what he's saying. He's not going up to the feast just yet. 
Now, the, the trans, our translations in English don't make that very clear. Okay? But that's what he is saying. When he, and he's saying, I'm not going up to the feast. When he's, he's not, it doesn't mean that he couldn't go later. That's, it doesn't preclude any further action. In which we know he does. He, goes, he eventually does go. Right? He doesn't, he's not going to the feast yet. And the reason why this is, the reason why he answers this way, the reason why he's not going to go yet, is because his life is regulated by his Heavenly Father's appointed times. He was not going to go to the feast when his brother said so, but he would go when his Heavenly Father said so. As one commentator put it, quote, the counsel of the wicked cannot be permitted to set his agenda, end quote. And so and, uh, he turns down his brother's request to go to the feast with them. He's not going to go with them, but for the time being, he remains in Galilee. Then, verse 10, after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So again, he tells his brothers he's not going to accompany them, but he does eventually go after they've departed. He remains for a time, and then he too goes up. But he doesn't go publicly as they were suggesting he go, but he goes privately. Now at this point, we can assume that the father had given the indication to the son that the time was now at hand for him to go up to the feast. And by the way, when it says going up to the feast, uh, this is a geographic indicator. Jerusalem is at a higher elevation, hence going up. We're, we're accustomed to uh, t- speaking of you know, going up as going north and going down as south. But this is literally going up in elevation. That's why it says go up. Even though, even though he's going south, uh, he's actually going up to Jerusalem. Anyway, Jesus makes the journey, but not publicly. He goes privately using maximum discretion. Again, this is the opposite of what his brothers had been proposing. And here's the thing, too. It's not always necessary, nor is it always wise, to go into a potentially hostile situation, hot, with guns blazing. That's not always a good idea. Sometimes, situations require discretion and caution. There are times to have a deliberative slowness, enter a situation quietly. That's wisdom. Jesus is here doing what he taught the twelve to do when he sent them out in, in Matthew chapter 10. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpent, serpents and innocent as doves. Our Lord had come to do the will of the Father and to accomplish the task in accordance with God's good providence. And so he was going to Jerusalem, but he wasn't going to pick fights and to come with you know, both guns blazing. He came quietly and privately. Jesus understood well the hostility which was waiting him at the feast. Verse 11 says the Jews were looking for him. In other words, there were some among the leadership who were searching for him. Here's these crowds that have gathered. And they're, you know, you think about the city just packed, filled with people as people are coming. And they're looking, where is he? Where is he? We've got to find him. They're searching for him. Again, what do they want to do? They want to kill him. Many among the leaders in Jerusalem uh, hoped that the feast would draw Jesus out into the open and into their hands. 
He was continuing to be a threat to their hold on power. Notice, too, if there's some level of exasperation, they're saying, where is he? Where is he? They have to find him. They're desperate to find him. Literally, they're saying, where is that one? Nevertheless, uh, not everyone is so hostile as them. There were some who had adopted a much more moderate position. There was a division among the people. Some were, there was much muttering about him, we read. Some were saying he's a good man, while others were saying he's leading people astray. Understand that the people at the feast were not only Judeans, and, but Galileans and Jews from the diaspora. You have people from all over the, the known world, from the empire. And they had come for this feast. So there is, you know, there's much talk about Jesus. There's much curiosity about him. You know, they've heard about this one who could heal the sick and the lame. This one who taught with authority. There was doubtless many who had heard about his miracles that he had performed. Perhaps many were talking about his teaching. They were intrigued by him. Some were. Some were put off, right? He talks about eating flesh and drinking blood. Some thought he did good things. You know, he healed the sick. He heals the lame. These are good. Others thought he's a liar. He's suspect. He's a charlatan. Regardless of the opinions of Jesus, the people spoke in whispers out of fear of the authorities. Verse 13, yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. The hatred for Jesus had come to a point that the authorities didn't want anybody speaking publicly about Jesus. They don't want to hear his name. You notice, again, going back, you know, it's, we're in verse 11, where is that one? They didn't even say, where is he? Where, where is that one? They didn't want to speak, they, want, they didn't want him spoken of at all. They wouldn't talk about him. Whatever the case may be, uh, Jesus had attracted a lot of curiosity. Some were interested and thought of him positively, others uh, negatively. And you can see, though, why he used discretion as he comes to the feast. Of course, we will see next time, Jesus will not remain hidden. We will see that in the middle of the feast, he will go up to the temple and he will begin teaching. And this will kick off another long discourse, which includes Jesus drawing on the symbolism of the feast. But we'll have more on that next time. The opinions of Jesus were as split in those days as they are today. People are split about Jesus even in our own day too. And so not much has really changed. What our text today does is illustrate the truth that belief is not a matter of the human will, but of the will of God. We saw this in John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Over and over again, we are confronted in this narrative with the fact that God accomplishes his will... And man cannot thwart that will. The things that Jesus would do were bound by the sovereign will of God in God's perfect timing and the ways in which God determined to set set these course of things to happen. And even his enemies couldn't touch him until the time had come. Even those who had sought to kill him could not do so until the time had come. His brothers, who perhaps had some interest in the works of Jesus... 
Um, they certainly wanted to see him, his, grow, his following grow. But even they don't believe. They're not hostile, but they don't believe. And even the timing of their faith is in accordance with the divine will. Isn't that interesting? God uses them, even in their unbelief, even as they will later become believers. And that's in God's timing. Far from making the Christian to be fatalistic, what these truths ought to do is give us great comfort. Oftentimes, we're desperate to see loved ones come to faith, aren't we? We pray earnestly for loved ones. Lord, please save them. We're worried about what tomorrow may bring. What if they died tomorrow? Lord, save them, please. I know many of you are in anguish over that with some loved ones. But if we understand some basic truths about the character of God, that He is good, that He is wise, that He is holy and righteous, and we can understand that God is in control of all things, that we can also learn to trust Him and be willing instruments in His hand and know that if, if in fact, our loved one is to come to faith, it will come in His perfect timing. And we can trust in His goodness in that. The division of the people in John 7 is rooted also in unbelief. Uh, faith would come as a gift to some, even, and even that is in the timing of God. We may not know what God's plans are, what God's purpose is. We don't know the experiences a person must have before they're inwardly called and born from above as children of God. We don't know what God is doing with people, but we can trust in Him and His goodness and His timing. But for you, dear Christian, take comfort and rest in the Savior who gave himself for you at the cross. He called you at just the right time to be his. Trust in the one who began a good work in you and will complete it. Trust in the one who is the Son of God, who died for you, who rose again for you and will keep you until the end. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, beloved, you can rest in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your truths. We thank you that your timing is perfect in all things. Help us, O God, to trust in that. That we may rest knowing that you're in control. That you are good and sovereign. Bless us, we pray. Help us. Help us to trust in you. Help us to believe, even, even as we struggle in our own hearts with unbelief. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.